Okay, well, I've got Tabitha here. I thought I'd introduce uh, Tabitha uh, to you. Tabitha, firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you're from, and things like that. Um, So I'm Tabitha, Tabitha Smith. Um, I'm married to James. Uh, We've been coming to this church for just a little while now. Um, I am a GP, uh, so I work just over the Somerset border, so up just near Sherbourne in a place called Millbourne Port. So as soon as you mention that phrase, being a GP, this has obviously been a very interesting time over the last eight, nine months for you. So just bring to life something of how that's been over those eight months, and particularly maybe some of the differences in this lockdown too. Um, So it's been a really bizarre time. I think... um, I don't think any of us could have foreseen what this sort of time was going to be like. And I think, in a way, general practice has had to sort of completely restructure and reinvent itself in a really short space of time. Um, We were already doing quite a lot of remote consulting even before this started, um, but it just literally pushed everybody almost overnight into having to use telephone and video consultations and emails and all sorts. Um, I think it's been... It's just been the rate of change that's been so unsettling and there's been sort of almost something new every week that we've had to deal with or sort of accommodate whilst handling our own fears, the fears of our staff, the fears of the patients um, and just an awful lot of unknowns really but I think we've, yeah, it's, it's been tough but we've, I think we've managed. <laughs> and in terms of the toughness and how that's been for you as an individual alongside you being a professional, yeah. um, how is your faith made a difference for you? Um, I think in lots of ways. I think, like I said, it's been the fear of the unknown that's been probably the hardest thing to deal with. Um, I think there's two two verses that have been like my sort of, um, I don't know, the the soundtrack to the pandemic for me and actually probably for for my life really in general. The first one being um, from Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be moved and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And so it's that reassurance that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it seems to get, God is always with us, and therefore we do not need to fear. Um, And the other verse from Isaiah 41, verse 10, which says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, because I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Um, And again, that's that feeling that no matter what happens, No matter how bad I think it is, God will never let go, and he's always there with me. That's fantastic. Thanks ever so much for sharing that, Tabitha. Tabitha is going to be uh, bringing God's word to us. Uh, But firstly, we're going to actually read God's word ourselves. That's going to be read to us by a member of our church called Caroline, and she's reading now from Mark chapter 5. Hello, good morning, everyone. I'm reading today, and we're reading from Mark's Gospel and we're starting at chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. 
and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him whilst he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed round him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking round to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the, bother the teacher any more? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. 
He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koam, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, a couple of months ago, um, James and I were driving along a dual carriageway, quite near here, in fact, and we saw one of those illuminated traffic signs on the side of the road, and it said, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. These days, we might not think that was anything unusual, but James remarked at the time that if we'd seen that sign a year ago, we'd have thought it was some sort of crazy spoof uh, or some ridiculous joke. It's surely something from a sci-fi zombie apocalypse film, not from real life in 2020. But in a short space of time, we've had to become accustomed to a completely different way of life. Things we would have thought unbelievable just a year ago are now totally commonplace. We wear masks everywhere we go, we squirt ourselves repeatedly with alcohol gel, and we queue obediently in lines spaced at two-metre intervals. Well, perhaps we're British, so we were quite good at the queuing thing anyway, but, you know, we just stand a bit further apart. We've also introduced a whole new vocabulary into our daily language that we just didn't, we didn't know these words a year ago. Shielding, self-isolating, remote working, and PPE. And now we've got another one, which we're looking at today, social distancing. Now, I looked up social distancing on Wikipedia, the source of all uh, knowledge, and found this definition. Social distancing is a set of interventions or measures intended to prevent the spread of a contagious disease by maintaining a physical distance between people and reducing the number of times people come into close contact with each other. Now, as David's already alluded to, the term social distancing is a relatively new one, but the practice is definitely not a new practice. In fact, the Bible contains one of the earliest known references to the practice of social distancing uh, for the purpose of preventing the spread of infectious disease. Now, if you're not too squeamish, perhaps not before your Sunday lunch, but uh, maybe afterwards, you could have a read of Leviticus chapter 13. Uh, This chapter goes into an awful lot of detail about isolating those who were unfortunate enough to find themselves scabby or spotty or leprous. And we can see the logic in this. Um, I mean, containing potentially infectious diseases was even more important in the days before antibiotics and other medical treatments. Now, the ancient Israelites and also the Jewish people of Jesus' day were no strangers to social distancing. They had a whole list of times when social distancing had to be followed. And not just distancing from other people, There were things they were not permitted to eat and things they were not permitted to touch. Here are just a few examples taken from the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, From Numbers chapter 19, whoever touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Uh, The pig is unclean for you. You shall not eat any of its flesh. You shall not touch its carcass because it is unclean to you. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, When a woman has a discharge and it consists of blood from her body, she will be unclean for seven days. Everyone who touches her will be unclean until the evening. Uh, One more. Those who touch the dead body of any human being shall be unclean seven days. Unclean. 
Now, being unclean meant that you could not go into the tabernacle uh, or later the temple to worship God. You had to observe a period of time ranging from a day to a week or sometimes even longer if the condition that caused the uncleanness persisted. Now, the Old Testament contains a whole catalogue of ritual purity laws that God set out for the Jewish people. And we don't have time to go into this in huge detail today, but we do need to understand that these laws can cause the modern reader quite a bit of confusion. Some of the rules seem logical to us, and we can make theories as to um, maybe this was to do with hygiene, like the rules about segregating people with uh, skin diseases, or maybe the rules about not eating foods that might be more likely to contain dangerous bugs like pork or shellfish. But it's a trap that the modern reader can fall into to think that this was all about hygiene, because it wasn't. And the other mistake we can make is to think that, the, that God's description of something richly unclean meant that it was always morally wrong. And that's clearly also not the case. In fact, quite a few of the purity laws are concerned with things that our human bodies are actually designed by God to do. Uh, and if God declared our human bodies to be very good, then these things can't be inherently morally wrong. Now, there were also lots of moral commands in the Old Testament about what was right and wrong in terms of our behavior towards others and behavior towards God. Um, And some of the ritual laws had ethical kind of underpinnings. So it's not black and white. It can be quite confusing. But in order to really grasp the background to today's passage, we do have to understand a bit of what ritual purity meant, or else we'll totally miss the impact of what Jesus does in this chapter. So basically, the Old Testament laws set out three ritual states. You could either be unclean, clean, or holy. And in fact, only God was holy. The state you were in dictated where you could go and what you could do in relation to God. So clean people could go into God's presence, whereas unclean could not. The high priest could be made holy enough, just holy enough, once a year to go into the inner sanctum of the temple or the tabernacle. And everybody else was either clean or unclean. Now, God was the only one that was holy. And holiness is like, it's a bit like the sun. It's both good, but also simultaneously potentially dangerous. So therefore, the people had to have very clear guidelines about when it was safe or not to be in God's presence. Now, the Bible doesn't always give explicit explanations about why a certain thing made you clean, ritually clean or unclean. Some of the reasons do seem to relate to hygiene. Others are to do with avoiding things that the pagan cultures around were doing. But perhaps the most helpful thing to consider is that uncleanness was to do with death or with symbols of death. And therefore, cleanness and holiness was to do with life. And if God is at the pinnacle of holiness then nothing that's associated with death can come into his presence. So, in the chapter we're looking in today, we see three encounters of different people with Jesus. Now, on the face of it, the three people are very different. We have a man, a woman, and a child. One appears to be mad, the other is ill, and the third is dead. The man is abused by others, The woman is exploited by others. The child, perhaps, is loved by others. And these three people represent outsiders and insiders, social outcasts and pillars of society, Gentiles and Jews. But they all share three things in common. 
They are all ritually unclean. They are all powerless to help themselves. And they all find themselves transformed through contact with Jesus. So we're going to have a brief look at each encounter. So firstly, the man. Um, Now, this man, he lives in a Gentile area. We can tell this because um, when we talk about, they say how Jesus traveled to the other side of the lake, to the area of the Gerasenes, there were herds of pigs there. Now, the Jews would not have kept herds of pigs. We've already heard the pig was an unclean animal. So that was, it, it was a Gentile area. Now, this man, if you look at the description of him, he is as broken and as damaged as a human person could perhaps be. Um, We heard a slightly abridged version of the story today, but if you look at the verses that we uh, omitted, you learn that this man lived in the graveyard, so he lived among the tombs. Um, He's really disturbed and really distressed, so he's day and night, he is wandering among the tombs, he is crying out, and he's cutting himself with stones. Um, he's obviously had to be restrained by other people. He's obviously an object of absolute terror, and people have had to shackle him and chain him up. And we learn that he's demon-possessed. And the demons have even stolen his his name. We don't know his real human name. His identity is now this legion of demons that inhabits him. And he's been abused by others. He's been, yeah, physically chained But when Jesus steps out of the boat um, and the man approaches him, Jesus does not run from him or show any fear or alarm. And instead, Jesus asks him his name. Now, in the Bible, and perhaps to us too, names are very important because your name was inextricably linked with your identity and who you were. So when Jesus asked the man, what is your name? He is, in effect, saying, I want to know you. I want to see you. And a bit like Abraham's slave girl, Hagar, this man finds out that Jesus is the God who sees him. And nobody has really seen this man for a very long time. So the demons then answer on behalf of the man. They say, uh, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, these demons clearly know that Jesus has power to do whatever he likes with them. And they beg him not to send them out of the area. Now, it's not just that they don't fancy moving to a different postcode. They, they actually don't want Jesus to send them into the abyss. And if you read the same story in Luke chapter 8, you, you hear that the demons say, please don't send us into the abyss, which was the final destination of all the powers of evil. So then the demons make this rather bizarre request to go into the herd of pigs instead. Um, they seem to need Jesus' permission to do this, which he duly grants, and roughly 2,000 pigs appear to completely lose their minds and rush off the side of the hill like lemmings into the sea. Now, I, I might be uh, completely on a tangent here, but I th- this made me think of a verse in the book of Micah, way back in the Old Testament, where Micah prophesied about a time when God would rescue his people. And he said, You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And Jesus seemingly takes all the uncleanness and the evil within this man, and he literally hurls it into the sea in the unclean pigs. And the man himself is immediately transformed and restored to his right mind. Everything is reversed. His his identity is now given back to him, and he's calm and clothed. He's no longer naked. I think you've got to feel a bit for him, though, because we read that he'd been an object of terror to all around him for so long. And now when the people see him, they're still afraid. 
but now maybe for different reason. No wonder he begs Jesus that he can perhaps go with him. Let's look at our next character. So we turn to the woman. This woman has been suffering for 12 years from abnormal bleeding. She has been ritually unclean for 12 years, and she's also been exploited by others. Her money has been spent on consulting doctors who have done her harm and not good. And she suffered a great deal physically. She's probably anemic at the very least, and she's also suffered the indignity of being subjected to treatments that have made her worse. We don't know her social situation, but I think if she were married, it would be unlikely the relationship could survive this, because in a Jewish marriage, any intimate contact would have been forbidden in her state of perpetual uncleanness. Now, she does something really bold and quite dangerous in approaching Jesus, because her presence in that crowd was not permitted She could make everybody she touched ritually unclean. But she has such faith that just touching Jesus' clothes can heal her that she takes this risk. Imagine her amazement when she realises she's been healed and then almost immediately her her horror at realising she's been discovered. Jesus knows. And she, the unclean woman, has just touched a Jewish rabbi. Jesus asks... Who touched my clothes? And once more, it's as if he's saying, let me see you. And the woman is so frightened that she's shaking. But Jesus responds with such tenderness. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus should have been made unclean by her touch, but the very opposite happens and she is made clean and healed. I can imagine the confusion in the crowd around at this point. People looking at each other, are we unclean or are we okay? I mean, we touched her, but is she unclean or is she all right? And then our third encounter is tied up with the woman's story. And just as one daughter is being saved, another is apparently being lost. The child is a little girl and she's 12 years old. And she's the daughter of one of the leaders of the synagogue. And she cannot ask for Jesus' help because she's dying. Her father is the only character in this story who we're introduced to by his own name, Jairus. And he is desperate. He falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him to help. Now the delay with the woman means that Jairus' daughter dies before Jesus can get there. There's no point in him going now. In fact, he really must not go now because the law says he'll make himself unclean just by going into the house where a death has just occurred. But Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. This must have sounded utterly unbelievable to the grief-stricken father. So they get to the house and Jesus brushes past the group of professional wailers. Stop your wailing. And you've got to wonder whether the disciples were concerned about going into the house due to its unclean state. But Jesus takes in three disciples, Peter, James and John, and the girl's parents. And he goes right in and he touches the dead girl. He takes her by the hand, he tells her to get up, and she does. Imagine the astonishment of everybody there. Once again, Jesus has touched the unclean and he should now be unclean himself, But the unclean state of death has been transformed into the cleanness of life again. 
So I'd like to propose three things we can learn as we look at these encounters. Number one, we are never too far gone for Jesus to reach us. The demon-possessed man had been way beyond any human help, and now he's fully restored. Even his madness and chaos were not beyond Jesus' reach. The woman had exhausted all her options, and she had suffered for so long that she must have virtually given up all hope of a cure. And the child wasn't just ill, she was dead, totally beyond any human hope. But no matter what chaos or disorder or illness or guilt or failure is in our lives, we are never too far gone. When Jesus is on the scene, there is always hope. We may think that we are the ones who seek out Jesus, but in reality, he's the one pursuing us. His timing is always perfect, and even when it seems to us that he's infuriatingly delayed, like Jairus, we can feel a sense of despair that he hasn't come to our rescue quick enough, and then we find out that he has something even greater in mind. Point number two is that Jesus welcomes us however we are. Now, it's very easy to think that we need to get ourselves sorted out before we can approach Jesus. Once we've cleaned up our act and we've sorted out our messed up relationships and we've become all round better people, then we can consider getting into conversation with him. But no, he wants us now and exactly as we are. We can be raging, we can be fearful, guilt-ridden, dysfunctional, imperfect, or even spiritually dead. If you don't yet know Jesus personally, you can be sure that there is nothing to stop you approaching him today. You cannot make yourself good enough for him, not even close. But that's the whole point. He's the one that does the transforming, so you don't have to. If we're already following Jesus, there will be times in our lives when we feel far from God. And we can sometimes look back on earlier times when we felt much closer to him and we prayed more sincerely and we read the Bible more enthusiastically and we felt alive when we worshipped him. We can feel a sense of guilt or despondency and it can feel like it would be an uphill struggle to get to that point again. But the worst thing we can do in these times is to withdraw from Jesus. He is the only one who can restore us and he simply wants us exactly as we are. Of course, there are lots of things we can do to stay close to him. We we tend to call these things spiritual disciplines, and, and they're often the key to surviving these dry wilderness times. But in those times when we feel totally unable to pray or read or sing or meet with anyone else, then we must just reach out to him. We can reach chaotically like the demon possessed man, or fearfully like the woman, or desperately like Jairus and he will never, ever reject your approach. Thirdly, Jesus' holiness transforms our uncleanness. We see that Jesus allows the unclean man to approach him, and he is touched by the unclean woman, and he lays his hands on the unclean child. But he is not contaminated. The uncleanness can't stick to him. He's like some sort of spiritual Teflon, Or to give another illustration to illustrate this, it's as if the ordinary people can become unclean, like a stain oozing onto a piece of clothing. But Jesus is like bleach. He isn't stained, and he purges the stain away. Jesus restores order to chaos. He gives peace to those who are in distress. 
He gives life to those who are dead. He has absolute power over sickness, evil and death. So what about us today? Well, we don't have to obey the Old Testament purity laws. And we don't talk in terms of being unclean or clean. But we certainly have exactly the same problem with sin and death that required these laws in the first place. The whole purpose of the law was to illustrate the need for a better, permanent solution, a more perfect solution to the problem of sin that separates us from God. You remember how he said that the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place of the temple just once a year. Well, that was called the Day of Atonement. And on this one annual event, the high priest would be able to enter the most holy place in the centre of the temple but only after the blood of a goat and a bull had been shed and the sins of all the people had been confessed and laid on the head of another goat, which was then sent out into the wilderness. Now, this ritual might seem quite bizarre to us, but it was given by God as a powerful symbol of the cost of dealing with sin. Where there is sin, there follows death, and the forgiveness of sin comes only through the shedding of blood. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament helps us to understand how the symbols and rituals of the Old Testament point forward to what Jesus came to do. Hebrews explains that Jesus came to be the ultimate high priest, but he also came to be the ultimate sacrifice. We read in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Jesus had mercy on the demon-possessed man, but there came a day when he allowed himself to be tortured and mocked and tormented and cut by men and by the powers of darkness, and he was shown no mercy. Jesus stopped the flow of the woman's blood, restoring her to health and peace. But there came a day when he allowed nails to be driven through his hands and his feet, and he bled, and he found no peace. Jesus took the little girl's hand and brought her back to life. But there came a day when no one came to his rescue as he died on a Roman cross, and he was overtaken by death. Jesus had spent all of eternity till that point in the most intimate relationship with his father. But he experienced the hell of distancing from God so that we would not have to. And the cumulative weight of all the uncleanness and sin of the human race was laid on him. And he became the sacrifice that would pay the penalty. And then on the third day after his death, he gave us the most amazing doubt-busting proof of his ability to rescue us. He left those grave clothes in the tomb, he left the stone rolled away, and he strode out into that first Easter morning to start inviting people into the new life with God that he had just made possible. In the book of Acts, we read, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death could not hold Jesus because it had no claim on him. If death is the consequence of sin, 
and Jesus is sinless and blameless, it cannot touch him. And his holiness is so powerful that death cannot touch it. And now, in the greatest mystery of all, he is able to clothe us in his holiness and blamelessness if we identify with him in his death and allow him to raise us to new life again. I think perhaps the verse that maybe sums it up best is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or you could say, God made him who was spotlessly clean to become unclean for us, so that we might be restored to a perfect relationship with God. So no one is beyond Jesus' reach. Nothing you have done is beyond his cleansing power. No guilt is too great for you for him to lift from you. No chaos is too great for him to restore to order. And no suffering is too great for him to transform into peace. And what should we do today? We should acknowledge that we are powerless to save ourselves. We can come to Jesus in our state of hopeless uncleanness and fall at his feet. He calls each one of us. He asks us our name and he takes us by the hand. Jesus says, little child, I say to you, get up. Amen.